to the book of Matthew. Well, it is a great privilege to return to our Walk Through the Bible series after um, a hiatus from the summer where we went through uh, the summer psalms and then where we have been preaching some messages for our Reforming Worship series. I'm very thankful to return to the New Testament portion of this Walk Through the Bible series. As you recall, the intent of this series, my goal is to walk with you through the pages of each book of the Bible to give you an idea of, of the big picture. What's the big picture of each book of the Bible? It can be really intimidating because there's 66 books. There's sometimes a lot of words or names or places that are referenced that are not at all familiar to us. And there's just a lot in here. It's a big book. So what is the big idea of each book? And how can we come to know these big ideas and have a better kind of framework, really, for reading Scripture? You know, as modern readers, I know, I know a number of you love reading books. In modern books, what do we have at the front? Right? We have a table of contents. And that table of contents gives us kind of a framework to know, okay, this is where we're going. And even that table of contents can also kind of give us an idea of what the main ideas are of this book. One great way, in fact, to, to judge a book, to, uh, to analyze it, is to, say, to see, did it stick to its argument? Did it stick to its framework? And how did we do that? But in both medieval literature, but then also scripture in the ancient Near East, you don't get tables of contents. And that the reader was expected to kind of think logically and think about how the book or how the thing you're reading holds together. And it's not as obvious. You know, we, it's, it's, it's not like going to McDonald's where the taste is very obvious. It shocks you in the face, right? It's like a subtle meal where you need to think about the ingredients. You need to think about what was put into it. And the books of the Bible are like that, where God calls us to think about what is the relationship between the different sections of these books and how does that highlight the big idea of Scripture. So this morning as we start the second half of this series in the New Testament, we're going to look at the big idea and the structure of Matthew. The theme of Matthew, I will argue this morning, is heaven's king and kingdom. Heaven's king and kingdom. Matthew is eager to show that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who will bring the kingdom of God, or as Matthew likes to refer to it, the kingdom of heaven to earth. Heaven's king and kingdom. It's interesting that only Matthew uses this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Normally we see the phrase, the kingdom of God, or something to that effect. But Matthew chooses to use this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And he uses it 32 times. So we have 28 chapters in this book, and he uses it 32 times. The kingdom of heaven. Of course, he also uses the phrase the kingdom of God or the gospel of the kingdom or the kingdom of their father or as Jesus will say, my father's kingdom. So 46 times in total, the idea of the kingdom is used in 28 chapters. I didn't calculate the average, but you can do that on your own. It's quite a bit. 
It's quite a bit. So heavens, kings, and kingdoms. And we find this theme as we consider the structure of Matthew. It's going to be important for you to keep your sermon folder or your worship folder open to page four, because this is going to be the order in which we walk through Matthew this morning. Now, there are a number of different ways you can outline a book of the Bible. Some choose to do so just by kind of literally saying, okay, this happened and this happened and this happened. Some use geographical um, ways to outline the Gospels, for example. But in this case, I find compelling what a number of scholars have found uh, to view Matthew as a series of six books, six mini books within the Gospels. And one of these striking literary features of Matthew is that there seems to be this going back and forth between narrative and discourse. So in other words, be between going through these series of like telling the story of Jesus's journey and ministry, and then these long sections where Jesus just speaks without interruption. So this narrative and discourse, and it happens six times. So that's what has led some scholars to, to view, if you want to call it, six books within the gospel that go back and forth. And as we study this from a literary perspective, we see certain themes being highlighted in these kind of A, B sections of each book. And so as we look at it, we see book one looks at the coming of the king. In book two, the spreading of the kingdom. Book three, the revelation of the kingdom. Book four, the gateway to the kingdom. Book five, the judgment of the king. And book six, the reign of the king. And so we're going to walk through these sections this morning and, and flesh this out a little bit. Again, in this kind of broad overview series, I can't take you into the details of every part of the book. But what I want to do is give you a tool or a framework so that when you study scripture on your own, which I certainly hope that each one of you are doing, this will be a helpful guide to, to get you to think about what God is teaching in each uh, book of his scripture. So let's begin then by looking at this book one, which is from chapters one to seven, the coming of the king. Matthew begins with this narrative dealing with who Jesus is and how he fulfills the law. So here you see I've written the lawful king, the lawful king. Matthew begins with a genealogy to show that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Two of the most important covenants in the Old Testament were God's covenant with Abraham, in which he promised to give Abraham a land and a people, a nation, and then the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David, when he promised to establish David's throne forever through one of David's sons. And so at the beginning, as Matthew is ingraining this idea of heaven's king and kingdom being Jesus, 
we begin with the ge this genealogy. And then after this genealogy, he goes on to show how Jesus fulfills Scripture according to the prophets. Throughout this narrative section of book one, we see this statement over again, and thus he fulfilled, and thus he fulfilled, or as it is written. Through these early chapters, Matthew keeps going back to the Old Testament prophets to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. So places like Isaiah 7 and Hosea 11 and Jeremiah 31 and so forth, Matthew keeps saying, see, Jesus did this, and that was to fulfill what the prophet said. Okay? What the prophet said. So just to give you an example of that. We read, for example, in Matthew 4, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So as you read and study this opening section, consider Matthew's argument, he's saying Jesus is the Messiah because he has fulfilled all of Scripture. He's fulfilled these things that the prophets foretold. In other words, he is the lawful king. He is the authorized one. And so Matthew in this section deals with Jesus' genealogical fulfillment, right? He also deals with the Egypt motif of this wilderness fulfillment. We see Jesus being transported after his birth and the threat of on his life even then. The, uh, they flee to Egypt, right? They flee. And they return. And then we find Jesus tempted in the wilderness, right? but where Israel failed in the wilderness, and died, Jesus succeeds, right? So we have a genealogical fulfillment, a wilderness fulfillment, and then we see this ministry fulfillment, which I just read from Isaiah 9 as Jesus begins his ministry. Matthew says this is to fulfill what was written in Isaiah, these people dwelling in darkness on them, a light has shone. And Jesus theme is presented, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is being shown to be the Messiah, the king of heaven, because he has fulfilled the scriptures. He has fulfilled the message of the prophets. Jesus, indeed, is the lawful, rightful king. As we move to the discourse section of book one, we also see Jesus bringing the king's law, right? 
The, dis, uh, the discourse section of this first book, of course, is what we commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's here that Jesus pronounces his blessing on God's people. And it's here where Jesus says, I have no intention of destroying or annulling the law, but rather to fulfill it. It's in this section where Jesus shows the fuller meaning of things like the Ten Commandments, where he says that if you look lustfully on another, you have committed adultery. Or if you harbor anger in your heart, you have committed murder. And Jesus expounds to show the full meaning of the law. And because Jesus is the authorized king of God's eternal kingdom, Jesus is also the one who has the authority to interpret scripture and to interpret the law. And he has no, he has no intention of destroying it, but rather upholding it and indeed heightening it and showing its full meaning. And after all of this, this coming of the king, we see those who are listening to him astonished. And this first book concludes with Matthew writing, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So here we see this emphasis of Matthew's at the beginning of the gospel, that Jesus is the lawful king and the lawful giver of the law. And now the king of heaven is here. Let's then turn to the second book and consider how Matthew shows the kingdom of heaven spreading. How does the kingdom of heaven spread? This book, the second book, is divided between the spreading of the kingdom, and then the sending of the king's messengers. And in this second book, we come upon a very interesting literary feature of the Gospels in general. Of all the books of scripture, maybe with the exception of apocalyptic literature, like you would find in the book of Revelation, the Gospels are, at one level, the easiest to understand, we're seeing Jesus teach parables and we're, and we're seeing miracles happen. But at a deeper level, the Gospels are one of the hardest genres to interpret when we get to the levels thinking about why the various Gospel writers chose to put certain stories in certain places and certain sayings in certain places because each Gospel writer does this in their own unique way. And part of, part of the excitement of studying the Gospels is that they're not just like, just four guys who just told the story and they had just little little kind of changes or the way they did things, they intentionally structured, structured the Gospels to make a really important point. And that's what we're beckoned to decipher, to look in and consider. And what we see here in this narrative section is something that all the Gospel writers do where they will chunk themes together and then flip-flop back and forth between them. So in this second book and in this narrative, Matthew flip-flops between 
stories about healings, and then teachings on discipleship. And so in Matthew 8, it starts with healings, three, three stories of healings, and then two teachings on discipleship. And then it goes back to two healings, and then goes to two tellings on discipleship. And then it goes to three healings, and then to two teachings on discipleship. So between chapters 8 and chapter 10, we keep going between these themes. And not only can we learn from what is written at the surface level of the gospel, but we're also being asked by Matthew to consider what is the relationship between healings and discipleship. See, we actually have to think when we read scripture. What is the relationship between healings and discipleship? And I think we could spend a lot of time thinking about that relationship, but I think it at least means that Matthew is intending to show that Jesus is the path both to outward and inward healing. As the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven comes to earth, Jesus is the one and only path to both your outward needs and your inward needs. And the kingdom is both things. The kingdom of God is not merely a set of, of laws or a set of propositions to believe or to know. It is also the place where all healing is found. It is the place where our bodies and souls are restored. Indeed, it will be the place where heaven itself, sorry, where earth itself will be renewed and restored when the kingdom comes in full. So Matthew asks us to consider what is the relationship between healing and discipleship as we see the kingdom spreading through Jesus' ministry. Then we turn to the discourse section of book two, which focuses on the king's messengers. And here Jesus gives his pep talk. We could call it that his pep talk to the disciples whom he's about to send out two by two into the mission field. The apostles, of course, are the sent ones. The word apostle just uh, comes from the Greek to be sent. And here Jesus sends them to the lost sheep of Israel and telling them to say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He tells the apostles that persecution is going to come as I send you out. He reminds them that they need to have no fear. Do not fear the one that can kill you. Fear the one that can throw soul and body into hell. He reminds them that he did not come. Jesus did not come to bring peace but a sword. And he reminds them of the rewards that will be given to those that help them on their way. 
and of the merciful who even give a cup of cold water to a child in his name will by no means lose their reward. Let's turn to book three. In the third book, which I've argued here speaks of the revelation of the kingdom, we see in the narrative section how the kingdom is revealed and concealed. And then in the discourse section, we come to a very famous passage in Matthew, which are Jesus's parables of the kingdom. And what, what does that mean? And how are we supposed to understand what is being said and what the kingdom is like according to those parables? So in the narrative section of book three, we discover that the kingdom is not revealed to everyone. The kingdom is not revealed to everyone. And there's about 11 sections in the narrative that really deal with understanding and misunderstanding of the kingdom and of Jesus. And chapter 11 opens up with the question, both who is Jesus and who is John? Who are these guys? They don't understand who they are. And Jesus has to teach on that. In Matthew eleven twenty five, we see this idea profoundly of the kingdom revealed and concealed. When Jesus thanks the Father who has revealed the truth, the gospel truth. He's, sorry, he's hidden it, the gospel truth, from the wise and revealed it to little children. He's hidden it from the wise and revealed it to little children. And then he'll go on and say that no one knows the Father and the Son except to those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know, one of the things that taught me this idea of total depravity and the need for grace, that we are completely lost unless God elects and chooses us, is in places like Matthew 11 to 13, where Jesus clearly shows that the Father has hidden the kingdom message from the wise and from many and revealed them to those who are humble in society like little children. So that when we come to see Jesus for who he is, a miracle has happened, like we talked about last week. A miracle has happened. And that we have no grounds for boasting in our own wisdom or our own skill to figure things out on our own. No one knows the Father and Son except to those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So if you know the Son, it's because Jesus, 2,000 years after his first coming, chose to reveal it to you. Bask in the marvelous grace. The Son the kingdom of heaven has revealed himself to you if you can see him for who he is. This narrative section closes then with 
Jesus being told that his mothers and brothers are out, his mother and brothers are out somewhere to see him. But then here we see Jesus revealing the true identity of his true mother and his true brothers. We learn that it is those who obey the will of the Father. In uh, chapter 12, verse 46, Matthew records, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And here again we see the kingdom revealed and concealed. Who, what are the identity of these people? Who truly are the people of God? It's not the biological people of Abraham, but the one who does the will of the Father in heaven, which will include biological children of Israel. But as we'll see by the end of this gospel, will also go to the nations. Then we turn to the discourse section of book three. And I don't have time to go into this in depth, but we see three basic types of parables in this section. The parable of the sower, about the seed, the gospel seed that is sown on different types of soil. And then we have the parable of the weeds, where we discover that, in fact, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who planted a field, but then we learn that the enemy came and sowed weeds in the field so that actually the kingdom of God will still be a mixed people while on earth. There will be the true, the true harvest, and then there will be the weeds sown in among them. And we certainly can see that throughout church history still today. The visible church is a mixed people of genuine believers and false believers. And then the final parables are parables of treasure, dealing with like the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value and the parable of the net. And then Jesus talks about new and old treasures. And again, in all of these things, we see this idea that the kingdom is not revealed to everyone. In verse 11 of chapter 13, Jesus said, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And he goes on with quoting Isaiah. But then in verse 16, Jesus says to his disciples, blessed, but blessed are your eyes, for they see in your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Further up, even in, in verse 10, before he said that, he tells the disciples the purpose of these parables when he says, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, them, that is the disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom 
of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So here again, the kingdom, Jesus says, is going to be concealed from many because it's not been given to them. But it'll also be revealed to his disciples who have been blessed from heaven to know the secrets of the kingdom. So book three deals with the revelation of the kingdom being revealed to his disciples and concealed from the world. Let's then turn to book four. In book four, we have what I call the gateway to the kingdom. In the narrative section, again, this idea of switching back and forth between themes, we have this going back and forth between belief or unbelief and then teachings about who are the citizens of the kingdom. So the narrative section deals with belief and unbelief and the discourse section with citizens of the kingdom. I, miss, I misspoke here in terms of what they go back and forth on. What I meant to say is that uh, in this narrative section, Matthew goes back and forth between issues of faith or unbelief and then miraculous powers. So these are the two things that are going to go back and forth. We have a section on unbelief. And then we have three teachings on miraculous powers, and then two teachings on unbelief, and then three teachings on miraculous powers, two teachings on belief, four teachings on belief, and then finally three teachings on miraculous powers. So we have this going back and forth between issues of faith and then miracles. And again, we need to ask ourselves, what is the relationship between faith and miracles? And having seen what we just saw in Matthew 11 to 13, if you can see, it is a miracle. If you have faith, it is a miracle. Because the very ability to believe is from the Father. The very ability to see comes from our Father in heaven. And again, if you're not quite there yet, recall what we looked at last week in Matthew 16. Remember when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus says to him in Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Faith is a miracle. That's why we looked at those three miracles last week. That we can believe is a miracle. That God uses fallen people like you and me is a miracle. And that the kingdom of hell will be destroyed in the presence of the kingdom of God is a miracle that only our Father in heaven can do through his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the discourse section of book four, it deals with who are the citizens of the kingdom. And in this section, we learn things like the 
the one who will be worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven will be the one who has humility like a child. We, we get Jesus' woe to the world for tempting his little ones to sin. We see that those who are of the kingdom of heaven will be those that don't despise the little ones. We learn that those who enter the kingdom will be those who are repentant. We also learn that those who are worthy of the kingdom will be the merciful, who forgive others as God has forgiven their own debts. And this harkens back to Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In summary of book four, the gateway to the kingdom is repentant faith. Repentant, humble, childlike faith. And for those that enter, it's because a miracle has happened. And that is the miracle As we turn to the book five and the judgment of the king, we see in the narrative section, the king's judgment, and in the discourse section, the king's coming judgment. In the narrative section, we see the kingdom given and the kingdom taken away. It's really interesting to me that in this section, Matthew begins with Jesus' teaching on divorce. Of all the things that would start this section, Matthew here chooses to insert Jesus' teaching on divorce. But I think it is very apropos because the kingdom is being divorced from the leaders of Israel and from the hard-hearted Jews and is going to be given to the despised and to the low in culture and eventually even to the Gentiles. Remember, even on the Gentiles, the light has dawned. In this opening of this section, this narrative section on the king's judgment, we see the kingdom being given when Jesus says, let the little children come to me. We see it in the discourse on the rich young man. We see it in a very interesting discussion on laborers in the vineyard. We see it in Jesus' healing of two blind men. And then we focus on the kingdom being taken away in the second part of the narrative of the king's judgment. Jesus enters the temple. He cleanses the temple. He curses the fig tree that was supposed to bear fruit. All of these things are pointing to visible external Israel and to the Jewish leaders that should have been bearing fruit. The Pharisees begin to double down and challenge Jesus' authority. Jesus tells the parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants, the wicked tenants, who kill the son of the landowner. 
He tells the parable of the wedding feast when all those who were invited refused to come. He said, go out and find others that way. The Sadducees challenged Jesus thinking they were so smart about the resurrection. The woman who had to marry several different men. Well, whose wife will she be in heaven? And Jesus puts them in their place. They challenge him about the law, and he teaches on the great commandment. Jesus, in his giving of his judgment to the Pharisees, gives seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And then finally, in this narrative section, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. See, Jesus knows that all that he is doing will, on the one hand, bring salvation to his people, but it's going to be bring destruction to the visible Israel that had, by and large, hardened their hearts to God. And he, indeed, will foretell of the destruction of the temple in this discourse section. So then we turn to the discourse, and Jesus talks about the king's coming judgment. This uh, discourse section is divided in two parts between signs and preparation between signs and preparation. So Jesus teaches about the signs that the end of the age is coming. One of the chief ones will be the abomination of, of desolation when the temple will be destroyed. Jesus teaches on the coming of the Son of Man. And he points back again to the lesson of the fig tree, which is a wonderful transition then to teachings on being prepared. Are you ready for the sun to return? And are you ready for the judgment? He reminds us to not rest on our laurels because nobody knows the timing. You know, you can't be, well, Jesus isn't coming back for 50 years, so... I'm going to go on kind of doing my own thing, and then just towards the end, I'll make sure I look really good. Jesus can come at any time. He talks about the parable of the ten virgins and the warning of the slothful virgins who didn't get their own oil, and they weren't ready when the bridegroom came. He talks about the parable of the talents and warns those that are so terrified of God that they don't do anything with the talents. And he says they're going to be taken away and given to others. So we're called to stewardship of our lives and of the things that God has entrusted to us for his kingdom in that parable. And then Jesus teaches us to be ready for the final judgment at the end of Matthew 25. So we see the kingdom of heaven and heaven's king moving through the gospel of Matthew. We have moved from the king coming to the kingdom spreading to the revelation of the kingdom to how do we get into the kingdom and to the judgment of the king. Book six then finally deals with the reign of the king. The discourse section is the passion narrative. 
where we see Jesus' plot and betrayal, where they plot and betray Jesus. It's here that Jesus does the Passover with the disciples and institutes the Lord's Supper, where he foretells a really fallen Peter that he's going to betray him three times. Where Jesus prays in the garden while his disciples sleep. And he's betrayed and arrested by a mob led by Judas. Then we come to the trial and the crucifixion where Jesus stands before Caiaphas and the council. He's dishonored before wicked men. We see the three times Peter denies Jesus. We see Jesus delivered to be crucified and mocked. We see his death and his burial and the guards placed at the tomb. And here at this point, it looks like Jesus is doing anything but reigning. It looks like the darkness has won. Then in Matthew 28, in the final chapter, Mary learns he is risen from the dead. And she goes and tells the disciples on the first day of the week, which is why we worship on the first day of the week. That's the day Jesus rose from the dead. The report, report goes to the guard. And then we see this really interesting phenomenon that as Jesus appears, to the disciples in Matthew 28. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. We are told that now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Isn't that remarkable? Just, just on a point of for those who think that the uh, Bible has like a man-written bias, it's just human religion, would any man-written holy book say that after their religious hero did something marvelous that some doubted? Isn't that amazing? The disciples bow down and worship Jesus, but some still doubted even when they could behold him, risen from the dead. And the honesty of Matthew here is, is, is profound, in my opinion. But here, Matthew brings the gospel to a close with the discourse section, which deals with Jesus as the cosmic king and his reign and commission. Remember the, how the end of book one, uh, or how, how book one concluded at the end? Remember that? with the crowds being astonished that Jesus taught as one who had authority. We see this beautiful literary tie of the beginning and the end here, from book one, the end of book one to the end of book six, where now what does Jesus say in verse 18? Look at that with me. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, all authority, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is heaven's king and the bringer of heaven's kingdom. That is Matthew's goal. We have seen that theme woven intricately throughout this literary structure. So as you read Matthew on your own, I hope that this will be a help to you to see the glory of Jesus as the Messiah. The glory of Jesus as the king of the kingdom of heaven. And the glory of Jesus as the one who has revealed the kingdom to you who believe. Personally, individually. When Jesus made this plan with the Father, he wasn't saying, I hope one day there'll be a few folks in Norway who will believe. He said, I have Elga and Christy and Penny and Mariah, right? He said, I'm choosing these people and I'm revealing the kingdom to them. So if you have the eyes to see, if you have the eyes to see, the mind to understand, it's because the kingdom has been revealed to you. Not generically, individually, and specifically. If you have the ability to believe, you are the beloved of God. And I know we still live in a a world of darkness, and we are waiting for the king's coming judgment. And it can be really discouraging to be a believer in these days. It can be discouraging to go to work. It can be discouraging as a minister in the spiritual warfare that we face on a daily basis. But if you have the ability to see, then blessed are your eyes. For flesh and blood has not revealed it to you. I've not revealed it to you. But your Father in heaven If you are able to believe, I want you to hear these blessed words from Jesus in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we will close with these today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you 
And you need to hear this, Christian. You need to hear this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord, it is such a comfort to hear those words spoken. To know that even that call on the blessing for the pure in heart can be a, a steadfast hope for us because you died for our impurity. You died for our sins. And you have cleansed us with your blood. You are heaven's king and the bringer of the kingdom. And Lord, while the light has dawned on Gentiles like us, while the light has dawned for the biological children of Abraham who have and this day do believe in you, while the light has dawned for the Jew-Gentile church, Lord, we know that we are like what we just read, those who are reviled and maligned, often on account of serving you. But I pray that we would remember the blessings that we have been given and the ones that will come. And to know, as we read at the close of this book, that you are with us always to the end of the age. We give you thanks for your love for us in coming to deliver us from the darkness. And we say together, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.